Hello, and welcome to this week's Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Adam Taggart, standing in for Chris Martinson, who's on the road this week. And this week, we have Charles Hugh Smith, proprietor of Up Two Minds and regular contributing editor to peakprosperity.com on the phone here with me. Hello, Charles. Hi, Adam. Glad to be here. Good. Thanks so much for coming in this week. Um, It's been a very busy week since Chris recorded the last Off the Cuff. Um, I'm hoping we can just jump right in and talk about the action in the stock markets uh, since their reaction to Bernanke's rumor about the, the taper. Yeah, uh, as you know, uh, those of us who've been skeptical of the whole idea that the Fed can uh, manipulate uh, the stock market ever higher without any real downdrafts or, or uh, downtrends, have, were, of course, pleased to see that reality intruded. And um, so far, the, the damage is relatively modest in terms of price, but uh, technically I think we can can see some some more serious damage. For instance, the uh, 20-day moving average is, you know, about to cross down below through the 50-day and sig- signifying a change in trend. And uh, so I, I would say that at a minimum, it looks like the uptrend has been broken and we're facing um, a period of, of chop and volatility. I mean, what, what do you see in the, the last couple of weeks' action? Well, certainly we've seen a breakage in the just 45-degree angle straight march upwards that the equity markets have had since the beginning of the year and, quite frankly, for about the past uh, 16 or 18 months before that. Uh, We're definitely seeing a a volatility that that hasn't been there, uh, and certainly market perception seems to be um, a little wounded in a way that it hadn't been beforehand. So I'm very interested to hear your comments about the technical side of things. We have seen a little bit of recovery over the past two days. I think psychologically it was important that uh, both the Dow and the S&P not only dropped below their record highs, but but broke below important round numbers. And today uh, the S&P has fought its way back up to just under 1,600, and it'll be interesting to see if it's able to punch through that tomorrow or not. In terms of the technical levels, um, if it if it does indeed continue to go down from here, and uh, you know, according to the piece that Chris wrote on on Friday last week, um, explaining how we're beginning to get into a liquidation phase, I think the probability of that is pretty high. Um, where do you see the next support levels downwards from here? I um, would say it's around fifteen hundred and, and fourteen hundred. Sort of the round numbers are actually good levels to look for if we continue in a straight uh, line down. What a lot of technicians are looking for is a volatile sort of chop up and down, kind of a stair step down where maybe um, the S&P goes back up to 1650 or or possibly even goes up and touches a new high at around 1700 and then and then resumes the the um, the downtrend. And so uh you know, summer tends to be a period where the market goes down anyway. And so there's the last several years offer uh, several models for us to consider. One is like months of, of kind of a choppy downtrend that, that bottoms in September, October, and then we get um, a standard relief rally or a new rally in uh, November and December. Another one is there's a sharp decline, uh, like a waterfall decline of 20-plus percent. So I think we have to be alert for both of those possibilities. Okay. You know, I know uh, on our side, uh, Chris's 
uh, gone on record giving a warning about a, a correction of that amount, or actually, uh, I think even substantially greater than that. Um, his timing is by September, and since he's not here, I'll leave it to him on a future off the cuff to refine the timing on that. But you know, it definitely seems, from a technical perspective, as you say, that 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 may be in the cards. I've got a larger question for you because it seems that uh, what really spooked the markets was uh, the reaction to uh, the latest FOMC minutes, where people got a whiff of the fact that the the Fed may indeed uh, not end, but just begin to uh, taper their liquidity efforts. Um, And this is at some point in 2014. And as the statement mentioned, uh, certainly dependent upon how the economy is doing then. Um, So it's funny that they get such indigestion, even though the Fed really didn't say anything uh, terribly specific. But there's a lot of doubt out there um, that the Fed is really ever going to be able to do that. That uh, indeed, uh, as we're just seeing here, uh, even just a slight whiff of it uh, sent the markets into a fairly turbid state of uh, dyspepsia last week. What is your thinking on that? Do you think that the Fed has that capability or is is that really just a a smokescreen at this time? I think one of the key dynamics is something that Chris and you and other uh, editors have discussed on the site in the past, which is the the rate of of growth of credit seems to be um, a key driver uh, of the economy here. And so perhaps what's happening, and I think we can say that this is also happening in China, is when the central banks stop expanding credit or creating credit at, at a very fast rate, if they simply slow the rate of growth, then um, that ends up becoming a factor that, that totally dislocates the credit markets, and then that sort of bleeds over and disrupts the equity markets. And so I think that that may be um, what's happening in China, uh, that they, the central bank has basically ex- expanded credit from like $9 trillion to $23 trillion in a few years. Mm-hmm. And so it ha- just slowing that rate of growth has now put China's credit market into a state of, of extreme instability. And so I think the, we could carry that uh, thinking over and, and look at the United States and say that the Fed, in simply saying it's not going to increase credit expansion, that's the death knell for low interest rates and, and an onward and upward equity market. Well, you hit on low interest rates, um, and that's something I'd love to dig into you a little bit deeper with, because um, we are beginning to see interest rates creep back up. Um, I know it's something you and I have talked about offline a few times, and, and I'd love to have a an on-the-record conversation about it briefly here. You know, we've seen interest rates begin to march, and they certainly um, reacted upwards uh, to uh, last week's uh, developments that we were just talking about. Uh, I know you've got some thoughts, and you, you, you mentioned China and, and the growing problems it's having in its credit markets, um, but I know you have some thoughts about uh, what might be coming for you know, the overall global credit markets. Maybe we could you could just very quickly give us a sense of, of what you perhaps see coming. And then let's talk about uh, interest rates um, because um, there's a growing number of data points and evidence that suggests that this might not be just a, a, a limited time frame in which rates are, are rising for a brief period, um, that we might actually be getting a secular trend back to interest rates that will be marching up to more sort of historic averages, um, you know, as, as you and our listeners know. Uh, they've been held down largely by central bank policy for many years now um, to historic lows for a historically long time. 
and um, rising interest rates have a huge impact on uh, the future. Um, as you mentioned, it's sort of a it's kryptonite to uh, economic recovery, and it impacts asset prices of all kinds, um, and it also impacts uh, our ability to afford our, our current way of life. So um, why don't we start with your thoughts on where the credit markets at a macro level are heading, and then let's talk a bit about interest rates. Sounds good. I think the the basic context we should start with is that, um, as everyone knows, in, interest rates have been declining for over 30 years. And if we look back over history, we find that those kinds of credit cycles tend to last 22 to 27, 28 years. So this period of declining interest rates is already extremely long in tooth. And so if from a cyclical analysis, we don't even need to know why, or we don't even need to speculate on the causes. We can simply look at the long-term chart and go, this market is due to reverse, and we will enter a long, uh, typically at least 14-year period of rising interest rates. That's if history is any guide. So that's kind of the context that we're, we're due for a trend change, and when the trend change does occur, then interest rates will be rising for many years to come. And uh, in terms of like the the macro picture, I think the lesson in China um, is that there's a rising fear of counterparty default, and uh, what that means is that you loaned money to a borrower, and then now you're afraid that the borrower might not be able to pay you back, or there's been a, an active rise in defaults, and so then you've got to charge more interest to anybody that you loan money to from now on because um, you're afraid that they too will default. And so um, that's, I think, a real issue around the world. And one reason why rates are rising is um, fear of counterparty default. The uh, second issue is liquidity crisis. And uh, what that means is people don't have enough cash to um, either pay back the the short-term loans that they've borrowed or they need cash to cover margin calls. And so there's a lot of reasons why uh, people would need cash. And so that would be um, a reason why they're selling bonds and gold and anything else they can get their hands on, but particularly bonds and gold because they're they're liquid. And um, so once people sell the bonds, then, of course, uh, that, that reduces demand for bonds, increases supply, reduces demand, and that pushes interest rates higher because – you know that's the way the formula works if you if you can't find buyers at this price then you have to raise the yield in order to attract buyers so right and i've no, i've noted that we've had uh, some historically weak treasury auctions recently i think the uh, the one that was just held for the 5 year note is uh, was one of the weakest in years yeah that's that's surprising in a way because there's a counter trend to this at least for the treasury the US treasury bonds which is of course as the um, peripheral uh, emerging economy markets weaken, then people are dumping their assets in those economies and they're coming to buy, you know, U.S. treasuries as a sort of safe haven. But clearly, the selling seems to be overwhelming the buying, hence one reason why the the rates are rising. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, as to the effects of rising interest rates, I'll just tell you what I wrote about real briefly today, which was I looked at two mortgages, one at the 3.5% interest rate that you could get in early May and the current rate, which is 4.875% on a conventional Fannie Mae qualified mortgage. 
and on a $300,000 mortgage, which is sort of typical for a new home around the, the nation, then um, it's $240 more a month for the, the higher interest rate, uh, which historically is still really cheap. You know, under 5% was inc- is incredibly low. And so, but that ends up being $86,000 in extra interest over the, over the life of the mortgage. And so if we multiply that times a million new mortgages and then eventually by 10 and 20 and 30 million mortgages as the old ones are paid down or the house is sold and someone gets a new mortgage, that starts adding up to some serious money that's being taken out of the household um, income right. and diverted to the owner of the mortgage. Right, um, and not only is it making mortgages uh, more costly, um, but it's it's bringing home prices down, which you know, has uh, benefits and, and costs. And obviously, the benefits are if you um, are, are in the market for a home, housing eventually becomes less expensive, although the mortgages are more costly. So it probably is a bit of a wash. Um, but you and I were talking that if if mortgages were to go up over time to their historic averages. Um, that would really be a, a, a pretty awful scenario for a lot of current homeowners. Um, you and I both live in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, where housing prices are much higher than they are in most other parts of the country. And uh, you know, if interest rates were to uh, get to historic highs, it's not inconceivable that, that housing prices, given the inverse relationship between interest rates and house prices, uh, could potentially have. And, uh, and, and boy, if they ever came down that much, you would have a lot, a lot of people that were essentially stuck in their houses. Um, they, they might be able to uh, continue to service their mortgages if they got a you know, fixed, low fixed mortgage, but they could never sell the house because uh, not only would they be losing their principal, their down payment, uh, but they'd be losing, you know, assuming that they didn't have a, a gain in the house uh, uh, and probably wouldn't if it got uh, halved. You know, they would be, they would already be on the hook. You know, most likely several hundred thousand dollars back to the bank. So, um, I guess one of the important things that I want to try to just sort of build awareness of with this discussion is, if we are indeed rising, uh, entering a period of going back to higher interest rates, um, an awful lot of things change. Um, and it's not even just uh, the prices of our housing; it's it's the price of of most asset classes. Um, obviously, stocks would take a pretty big hit too in that type of environment. Um, what what else? You know, what do you think people should be thinking about as they, they look to a higher interest rate future? Yeah, well, let's put some uh, numbers to that dynamic that you just described. If interest rates, uh, mortgage rates rose from, say, 4% to 8%, and they're already pushing up to 5 so that's, that's, not, um, that's not out of the realm of historical averages. Typically, mortgage rates, if you go back to, to the 70s and, and 80s and 90s, if you take away that big you know, spike to 17% uh, in the 80s, uh, the average mortgage rate is 7 to 9%, so 8% would be normal. Well, that raises your mortgage uh, expense monthly about 50%. And so um, by the ratio, the sort of uh, seesaw effect that you, you mentioned, that means that the cost of the house has to drop by 50% as well in order for the, the person to have a mortgage payment of the same size. So, I mean, that's a serious, that's a serious decline. And um, historically, you can't really break that. You can't expect people to pay twice as much uh, mortgage. They're already maxed out. I think the other thing that, that really is called into question is the whole idea that the economy can grow, that the people can always spend more money 
and borrow more money and have and make more money and have more money to consume. Well, if their mortgage payments are rising considerably, then that means they actually have less money to spend on other stuff and they have less money to invest. And so then you've got um, an economy that's bleeding both uh, savings and investment, and it's also bleeding consumption. Right. So, um, I mean, we're early early days in here in these rising interest rates, and it's obviously something that we're keeping an extremely close eye on here at Peak Prosperity. But, uh, you know, to the spirit of your comments, Charles, um, you know, it is a it is a very big development if we are indeed at the end of this multi-decadal cycle and rates are beginning to creep back up. Yeah. Well, another um, another issue that that is uh, could become critical uh, to the economy is in in an era of rapidly rising rates. Well, lenders are of course fearful of issuing a loan because if you issue a mortgage at seven and a half and and, um, and two months later the rates eight and a half, you're underwater on that mortgage, and so. Um, what that does is it creates a credit uh, tightening, you know, that the Fed could be um, dumping a trillion dollars every quarter into um, the banking system, but no one will want to loan money because as soon as you issue a loan, uh, like a mortgage, a longer-term loan, well, then you're going to be underwater if rates continue rising. So it could very easily become a situation where um, – there may be money floating around the, the, the Federal Reserve, but um, there's no lending going on. Right. And I imagine there's a flip side to that, too, where um, not only are the lenders less likely to want to lend, but new home purchasers are probably less likely to jump into the market if, if rates are rising rapidly, because that means that housing prices are falling rapidly. And even though they might get a cheaper mortgage if they move quickly, um, nobody wants to buy an asset that's gonna, you know, that they expect to immediately fall in value. So you might be getting it hit on both sides there. Yeah, and um, and then the triple whammy is that if people can't borrow money easily um, or they're fearful of borrowing, then a lot of housing is going to be sitting um, on the uh, on the market dead in the water. Like there won't be enough buyers to soak up the inventory, so then you could easily have um, an overloaded um uh, inventory that that weighs and that the only way that you can unload your house is to just um, put it at a bargain price golly yeah well that uh, that is certainly an ugly situation and 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 only uh, a component of why so many people think that uh, the fed will do all it can to uh, to continue to keep rates low um, and uh, we very well may be in for Another announcement at some point in time, if the markets really get rocky, um, of uh, more Fed liquidity as opposed to less. Um, well, I'd like to move on really quickly here, Charles, and uh, and touch on uh, the precious metals market. Um, it has continued to be really ugly in those markets. Um, uh, since last week's uh, low prices, um, prices have gotten uh, sucker punched yet again. Uh, and are down. Um, I think it's. I think I read somewhere this is going to be the worst quarter for gold and. I don't know, 40 years or something like that. Um, it's, and I'm sure silver is, is just as bad. I think silver is, uh, is down now 50% basically since the beginning of the year. Um, so uh, I guess first question is, is uh, I know you've written for us on gold from a technical perspective. Um, so uh, what do you see here? Um, I know some of these prices were uh, not necessarily foretold by the last piece that you wrote uh, on charting gold, but um, at least uh, they were shown as important technical levels that, that we might get to. And it certainly seems, unfortunately, that we've, we've hit those levels. So um, what are you seeing? 
Yeah, I had, I had said, um, I think it was about six or eight weeks ago, that uh, technically the 1250 level, 1200 to 1250, was an obvious level of support and resistance. And then there was another level below, um, which is around 1100. And those, um, for technicians, those um, are visible just in the price chart, but they also align with the Fibonacci retracements um, that, uh, you know, over time, people have long noticed that markets tend to retrace to these Fibonacci numbers of 38.2%, 50%, and 62%. And so um, around 1250 uh, was, you know, uh, a uh, 38% retracement roughly, and around uh, 1100, uh, 1090 would be like a 50% retrace of the of the move. And so those are technically, you know, sort of obvious levels. And um, so that's what's dangerous to um, is for owners of gold is to put in, um, you know, uh, trading stops at those levels because market makers will then of course push um, push the price below that trigger the stops and then and then scoop it up so anyways those are the those are the levels and so the 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 bears um, on gold are looking for a decline of another hundred bucks or so down to the eleven hundred level and the bulls are saying um, this is the line in the sand at thirty eight percent retrace is more than enough and we should find a bottom here and start moving our way back up to the technical levels that we've broken, which would be 1320 and uh, 1450. Okay. And uh, I know you and I have talked that uh, yeah, the price action here has been so swift and so violent in many ways that it leaves a lot of gaps that, uh, that if there is a retracement, uh, gaps tend to be filled back in pretty quickly. If we do start to go back up from here, uh, do you think it's going to be a, a relatively fast process, or, or would it be more slow and gradual? Uh, there's certainly an argument to be made for, for both. Like uh, some, some technicians believe that when there's been big technical damage done, like uh, big downdrafts like this, that there's a period of, of healing that takes um, a, a few months while things kind of noodle around at, at support. And that that's one option. The other uh, scenario is a sharp uh, return to higher levels after this uh, capitulation. And so these huge gap downs uh, look to me more like a capitulation, the big 200-point drop, you know, that, um, that many of us thought was the, the ultimate capitulation back in April. And then now we have a, another wave of, of capitulation with huge gaps opening up on a practically daily basis. So I would say the, um, technically you could make a very strong case for a spike back up to the 1300 level, which would fill all the gaps, uh, between, um, the current level and 1300. And then eventually working back up to fill the gaps around, uh, 14 to 1450 and then the gap at, at 1500. And so the other interesting aspect of this, of course, is um, there's quite a bit of short interest in uh, the gold miners and, and, in, and in the gold ETFs, I would, I would imagine, as well. So once this downdraft uh, reverses, there's going to be a considerable number of shares that have to be uh, covered. And that would, of course, fuel a, a sharp spike back up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Um, uh, I'd like to stay on the technical just for a little bit longer. Um, 
you and I have also talked about sort of grand patterns that you sometimes see in asset prices. And first, I should say, you know, it has been a horrible year so far for the precious metals, and um, there very well could be continued downside here. Nobody knows in the short term. Before we get to a fundamental conversation, you've mentioned to me in the past that that some of these patterns have um, sort of definable legs in turn of their directions, you know, sort of a, a classic ABCD move. Um, everybody listening here may not be completely familiar with that. Um, if you could maybe just give a brief, quick description of how that progression uh, moves and what you think could happen here if we're indeed in, in a larger uh, ABCD pattern like that. Happy to. Uh, many of you have probably heard of um, very complicated uh, technical uh, systems such as Elliott Wave Theory, which has um, five waves that uh, have a variety of different you know, uh, characteristics and can be ending waves, and they can be subdivided into separate waves, you know, five waves of five waves of five waves. Well, a more basic technical pattern is just called an ABCD wave move, where A is the starting point and there's an up leg, or it could be a down leg. In our case, we're talking about an up leg. So that move is um, measures whatever it is. Then there's a typically a retrace, which would be the B leg, which retraces maybe half, uh, maybe a third, you know, maybe as much as 62% of that first move up. So that's the B leg retrace. Then the C leg is typically the, the next move up, which is much larger than the A leg up. And you can, a lot of people estimate it's roughly twice as big. It can be some some variation on that, but it, it, it's always bigger than the A leg. So if you look at gold on a on like a 10-year chart, and then you you could say that the move from you know the 350 level to 1900 was an A leg, and the retrace over the last couple of years from 1900 to our current level around 12 would be the B leg, uh, the retrace, and it's already hit the, the these uh, at least the first key Fibonacci number of 38 percent. So it sort of satisfies any requirement people might have for a, a solid. B leg down. So then the next leg would be the C leg, which would actually be uh, larger than the A leg. And so this technical pattern uh, aligns with the, those uh, people who foresee gold going to say 3,000 an ounce or 3,200 or 2,700. There's a lot of a lot of uh, projections out there, but that would be the um, technical basis for a move beyond 1,900. Up to the twenty five hundred to three thousand level. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to spend some time on the technical side of things. One, because you are, are so knowledgeable in it, Charles, um, but also because um, it's hard to have a fundamental discussion about gold right now. Because if you look at almost any fundamental element um, that uh, underlies the precious metals, um, it's actually you know positive or extremely positive. Um, there, there really is nothing that I can find from a fundamental standpoint, whether it's real interest rates or the, the, the cost of mining gold or economic instability or uh, comics inventories or the uh, commitment of traders uh, reports with, with the major commercial banks now, um, with gold at least having recently gone uh, net long, which is the first time they've been that way since, I think, 2004 to the demand, uh, the continued growing demand from the East uh, for physical bullion. 
there really doesn't seem to be anything from a fundamental level that, that supports in any way the price action that we've seen so far this year. So I really do appreciate your, your insight there to what could happen technically, because um, I, I think since we've diverged for at least some period of time from the fundamentals, um, you know, let's see what the technicals can tell us. Um, again, from, uh, from a fundamental standpoint, uh, at least you know, from Chris's and my standpoint, we believe that in the end, the fundamentals will always play out. So that's where we tend to keep our, our um, vision locked um, the majority of the time. But seeing the technical perspective on top of that is also really helpful. From a fundamental standpoint, you know, is there anything you have to add to, to my general sort of head scratching here going on? <laughs> well, uh, let me uh, add one uh, technical comment uh, from the recent past, which is if we look at the, what gold did in the 2008 to 2009, the, the year 2008, we we see that it had this horrendous series of downdrafts and lost about a third of its value from about a thousand to seven hundred. And so it, we actually have a, a, a recent history of, of a similar size drop. And, of course, uh, that's why Chris is saying that, that the current uh, economic and financial situation reminds him so much of 2008 is gold did a very similar move. It dropped. It lost a third of its value without a lot of fundamental reasons for that. It was It was mostly related to the um, destabilization and ultimate meltdown of, of the global financial system. So this is, uh, I guess, fundamentally what I would say is that, that gold's actions don't really have a, um, a very good explanation other than they are a, a deep reflection of the instability and crisis in the global financial system, very similar to 2008. Great. Well, Charles, thank you so much. I'm going to have to leave it there from a time perspective. I've actually gotten a lot more out of you than I had even hoped today, time-wise. So thank you so much. And um, we look forward to having you back on Off the Cuff again soon. Thank you very much, Adam. All right, Charles. Bye. Bye.